0: Get started today at plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss. Tonight, I will be reading To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. The window. One. Yes, of course, if it's fine tomorrow, said Mrs. Ramsay, But you'll have to be up with the lark, she added. To her son, these words conveyed an extraordinary joy, as if it were settled. The expedition were bound to take place, and the wonder to which he looked forward, for years and years, it seemed, was after a night's darkness and a day's sail, within reach. Since he belonged, even at the age of six, to that great clan which cannot keep this feeling separate from that, but must let future prospects, with their joys and sorrows, cloud what is actually at hand, since to such people, even in earliest childhood, any turn in the wheel of sensation has the power to crystallize and transfix the moment Upon which its gloom or radiance rests. James Ramsay, sitting on the floor, cutting out pictures from the illustrated catalogue of the Army and Navy stores, endowed the picture of a fridge, as his mother spoke, with heavenly bliss. It was fringed with joy. The wheelbarrow, the lawnmower, the sound of poplar trees, leaves whitening before rain, rooks cawing, brooms knocking, dresses rustling. All these were so coloured and distinguished in his mind that he had already his private code, his secret language, though he appeared the image of stark and uncompromising severity, with his high forehead and his fierce blue eyes, impeccably candid and pure, frowning slightly at the sight of human frailty, so that his mother, watching him guide his scissors neatly round the refrigerator, imagine him all red and ermine on the bench, or directing a stern and momentous enterprise in some crisis of public affairs. But, said his father, stopping in front of the drawing-room window, it won't be fine. Had there been an axe handy or a poker, any weapon that would have gashed a hole in his father's breast and killed him there and then, James would have seized it. Such were the extremes of emotion that Mr. Ramsay excited in his children's breasts by his mere presence, standing as now, lean as a knife, narrow as the blade of one, grinning sarcastically, not only with the pleasure of disillusioning his son and casting ridicule upon his wife, who was ten thousand times better in every way than he was, James thought, but also with some secret conceit at his own accuracy of judgment. What he said was true. It was always true. He was incapable of untruth, never tampered with a fact, never altered a disagreeable word to suit the pleasure or convenience of any mortal being, least of all his own children, who sprung from his loins should be aware from childhood that life is difficult, facts uncompromising. And the passage to that fabled land where our brightest hopes are extinguished, our frail barks founder in darkness. Here, Mr. Ramsay would straighten his back and narrow his little blue eyes upon the horizon, one that needs, above all, courage, truth, and the power to endure. But it may be fine. I expect it will be fine, said Mrs. Ramsay, making some little twist of the reddish brown stocking she was knitting. Impatiently. If she finished it tonight, if they did go to the lighthouse after all, it was to be given to the lighthouse keeper for his little boy, who was threatened with a tuberculosis hip, together with a pile of old magazines and some tobacco, indeed, whatever she could find lying about, not really wanted, but only littering the room, to give those poor fellows who must be bored to death, sitting all day with nothing to do. To polish the lamp, and trim the wick, and rake about on their scrap of garden, something to amuse them. For how would you like to be shut up for a whole month at a time, and possibly more in stormy weather, upon a rock the size of a tennis lawn? She would ask, and to have no letters or newspapers, and to see nobody, if you were married, not to see your wife, not to know how your children were, if they were ill, if they had fallen down and broken their arms or legs, to see the same dreary waves breaking week after week and then a dreadful storm coming and the windows covered with spray and birds dashed against the lamp and the whole place rocking and not be able to put your nose out of doors for fear of being swept into the sea. How would you like that, she asked, addressing herself particularly to her daughters. So she added, rather differently, one must take them whatever comforts one can. It's due west, said the atheist Tansley, holding his bony fingers spread so that the wind blew through them, for he was sharing Mr. Ramsay's evening walk up and down, up and down the terrace. That is to say, the wind blew from the worst possible direction for landing at the lighthouse. Yes, he did say disagreeable things, Mrs. Ramsay admitted. It was odious of him to rub this in and make James still more disappointed, but at the same time she would not let them laugh at him. The atheist, they called him, the little atheist. Rose mocked him, Prue mocked him, Andrew, Jasper, Roger mocked him. Even old Badger without a tooth in his head had bit him, for being, as Nancy put it, the hundred and tenth young man to chase them all the way up to the Hebrides when it was ever so much nicer to be alone, nonsense said Mrs. Ramsay with great severity, apart from the habit of exaggeration which they had from her, and from the implication which was true that she asked too many people to stay and had to lodge some in the town, she could not bear incivility to her guests, to young men in particular who were poor as church mice, exceptionally able. Her husband said, his great admirers, and come there for a holiday. Indeed, she had the whole of the other sex under her protection for reasons she could not explain for their chivalry and valor, for the fact that they negotiated treaties, ruled India, controlled finance, finally, for an attitude towards herself which no woman could fail to feel or to find agreeable. Something trustful, childlike, reverential, which an old woman could take from a young man without loss of dignity, and woe betide the girl, for heaven it was none of her daughters, who did not feel the worth of it, and all that it implied to the marrow of her bones. She turned with severity upon Nancy. He had not chased them, she said. He had been asked. They must find a way out of it all. There might be some simpler way, some less laborious way, She sighed. When she looked in the glass and saw her hair grey, her cheek sunk at fifty, she thought, possibly she might have managed things better. Her husband, money, his books. But for her own part, she would never for a single second regret her decision, evade difficulties or slur over duties. She was now formidable to behold, and it was only in silence, looking up from their plates, After she had spoken so severely about Charles Tansley, that her daughters, Prue, Nancy, Rose, could sport with ideas which they had brewed for themselves of a life different from hers. In Paris, perhaps, a wilder life, not always taking care of some man or other, for there was in all their minds a mute questioning of deference and chivalry, of the Bank of England and the Indian Empire, of ringed, Fingers and lace. Though to them all there was something in this of the essence of beauty, which called out the manliness in their girlish hearts and made them, as they sat at table beneath their mother's eyes, honor her strange severity, her extreme courtesy, like a queen's rising from the mud to wash a beggar's dirty foot, when she thus admonished them so very severely about that wretched atheist who chased them. Or, speaking accurately, been invited to stay with them in the Isles of Sky. There will be no landing at the lighthouse tomorrow, said Charles Tansley, clapping his hands together as he stood at the window with her husband. Surely he had said enough. She wished they would both leave her and James alone and go on talking. She looked at him. He was such a miserable specimen, the children said, all humps and hollows. He couldn't play cricket. He poked. He shuffled. He was a sarcastic brute, Andrew said. They knew what he liked best to be forever walking up and down, up and down with Mr. Ramsay and saying who had won this, who had won that, who was a first rate man at Latin verses, who was brilliant but I find fundamentally unsound, who was undoubtedly the ablest fellow in Balliol, who had buried his light temporarily at Bristol or Bedford but was bound to be heard of later when his prolegomena, of which Mr. Tansley had the first pages in proof of him, if Mr. Ramsay would like to see them, to some branch of mathematics or philosophy saw the light of day. That was what they talked about. She could not help laughing herself sometimes. She said the other day, something about waves, mountains, high. Yes, said Charles Tansley, it was a little rough. Aren't you drenched to the skin, she had said. Damp, not wet through, said Mr. Tansley, pinching his sleeve, feeling his socks. But it was not that they minded, the children said. It was not his face, it was not his manners. It was him, his point of view. When they talked about something interesting, people, music, history, anything, even said it was a fine evening, so why not sit out of doors, then what they complained of about Charles Tansley was that until he had turned the whole thing round and made it somehow reflect himself and disparage them, he was not satisfied. And he would go to picture galleries, they said, and he would ask one, did one like his tie? God knows, said Rose, one did not. Disappearing as stealthily as Stag's from the dinner table directly, the meal was over. The eight sons and daughters of Mr. and Mrs. Ramsay sought their bedrooms, their fastnesses in a house where there was no other privacy to debate anything, everything, Tansley's tie, the passing of the reform bill, seabirds and butterflies, people. While the sun poured into those attics, which a plank alone separated from each other, so that every footstep could be plainly heard, and the Swiss girl sobbing for her father, who was dying of cancer in a valley of the Grissons and lit up bats, flannels, straw hats, ink pots, paint pots, beetles, and the skulls of small birds, while it drew from the long-frilled strips of seaweed pinned to the wall, a smell of salt and weeds, which was in the towels too, gritty with sand from bathing. Strife, divisions, difference of opinion, prejudices twisted into the very fibre of being, Oh, that they should begin so early, Mrs. Ramsay deplored. They were so critical, her children. They talked such nonsense. She went from the dining room, holding James by the hand, since he would not go with the others. It seemed to her such nonsense, inventing differences, when people, heaven knows, were different enough without that. The real differences, she thought, standing by the drawing room window, are enough, quite enough. She had in mind at the moment rich and poor, high and low, the great in birth receiving from her some half-grudgingly, half-respect. For had she not in her veins the blood of that very noble, if slightly mythical, Italian house, whose daughters, scattered about English drawing-rooms in the nineteenth century, had lisped so charmingly, had stormed so wildly, and all her wit and her bearing and her temper came from them, And not from the sluggish English or the cold Scotch. But more profoundly, she ruminated the other problem of rich and poor, and the things she saw with her own eyes, weekly, daily, here or in London, when she visited this widow or that struggling wife in person with a bag on her arm and a notebook and pencil with which she wrote down in columns carefully ruled for the purpose, wages and spendings, employment and unemployment. In the hope that thus she would cease to be a private woman whose charity was half a sop to her own indignation, half a relief to her own curiosity, and become what, with her untrained mind, she greatly admired an investigator elucidating the social problem, insoluble questions they were it seemed to her standing there, holding James by the hand, he had followed her into the drawing-room, that young man they laughed at, he was standing by the table fidgeting with something, awkwardly, feeling himself out of things, as she knew, without looking round. They had all gone, the children, Minta Doyle and Paul Rayleigh, Augustus Carmichael, her husband. They had all gone. So she turned with a sigh and said, Would it bore you to come with me, Mr. Tansley? She had a dull errand in the town. She had a letter or two to write. She would be ten minutes, perhaps. She would put on her hat and with her basket and her parasol, there she was again, ten minutes later, giving out a sense of being ready, of being equipped for a jaunt, which, however, she must interrupt for a moment as they passed the tennis lawn, to ask Mr. Carmichael, who was basking with his yellow cat's eyes ajar, so that like a cat's, they seemed to reflect the branches moving or the clouds passing, but to give no inkling of any inner thoughts or emotion whatsoever if he wanted anything. For they were making the great expedition, she said, laughing. They were going to town. Stamps, writing paper, tobacco, she suggested, stopping by his side. But no, he wanted nothing. His hands clasped themselves over his capacious paunch. His eyes blinked as if he would have liked to reply kindly to these blandishments. She was seductive, but a little nervous, but could not, sunk as he was in a green-grey somnolence which embraced them all, without need of words, in a vast and benevolent lethargy of well-wishing. All the house, all the world, all the people in it. For he had slipped into his glass at lunch a few drops of something, which accounted the children thought for the vivid streak of canary yellow in moustache and beard that was otherwise milk-white. No, nothing, He murmured. He should have been a great philosopher, said Mrs. Ramsay, as he went down the road to the fishing village. But he made an unfortunate marriage. Holding her black parasol very erect and moving with an indescribable air of expectation, as if she were going to meet someone round the corner, she told the story An affair at Oxford with some girl, an early marriage, poverty, going to India, translating a little poetry very beautifully, I believe. Being willing to teach the boys Persian or Hindustani, but what really was the use of that? And then lying as they saw him on the lawn. It flattered him, snubbed as he had been. It soothed him that Mrs. Ramsay should tell him this. Charles Tansley revived. Insinuating, too, as she did the greatness of man's intellect, even in its decay, the subjection of all wives, not that she blamed the girl. And the marriage had been happy enough, she believed. To their husband's labours, she made him feel better pleased with himself than he had done yet. And he would have liked, had they taken a cab, for example, to have paid for it. As for her little bag, might he not carry that? No, no, she said. She always carried that herself. She did too. Yes, he felt that in her. He felt many things, something in particular that excited him and disturbed him for reasons which he could not give. He would like her to see him, gowned and hooded, walking in a procession, a fellowship, a professorship. He felt capable of anything, and saw himself, but what was she looking at? At a man pasting a bill. The vast, flapping sheet flattened itself out, and each shove of the brush revealed fresh legs, hoops, horses, glistening reds and blues, beautifully smooth until half the wall was covered with the advertisement of a circus. A hundred horsemen, twenty performing seals, lions, tigers. Craning forwards, for she was short-sighted, she read it out. We'll visit this town, she said. It was terribly dangerous work for one-armed man, she exclaimed, to stand on top of a ladder like that. His left arm had been cut off in a reaping machine two years ago. Let us all go, she cried, moving on as if all those riders and horses had filled her with childlike exultation and made her forget her pity. Let's go, he said, repeating her words, clicking them out, however, with a self-consciousness that made her wince. Let us go to the circus. No, he could not say it right. He could not feel it right. Why not, she wondered. What was wrong with him then? She liked him warmly at the moment. Have they not been taken, she asked, to circuses when they were children? Never, he answered, as if she asked the very thing he wanted, had been longing all these days to say how they did not go to circuses. It was a large family, nine brothers and sisters, and his father was a working man. My father is a chemist, Mrs. Ramsay. He keeps a shop. He himself had paid his own way since he was thirteen. Often he went without a greatcoat in winter. He could never return hospitality. Those were his parched, stiff words at college. He had to make things last twice the same other people did. He smoked the cheapest tobacco, shag, the same the old men did in the keys. He worked hard, seven hours a day. His subject was now the influence of something upon somebody. They were walking on, and Mrs. Ramsay did not quite catch the meaning. Only the words here and there. Dissertation, fellowship, readership, lectureship. She could not follow the ugly academic jargon that rattled itself off so glibly, but said to herself that she saw now why going to the circus had knocked him off his perch, poor little man, and why he came out instantly with all that about his father and mother and brothers and sisters, and she would see to it that they didn't laugh at him anymore. She would tell Prue about it. What he would have liked, she supposed, would have been to say how he had gone not to the circus but to Ibsen with the Ramses. He was an awful prig, oh yes, an insufferable bore. For though they had reached the town now and were in the main street, with carts grinding past on the cobbles, still he went on talking about settlements and teaching and working men and helping our own class and lectures, till she gathered that he had got back entire self confidence, had recovered from the circus. And was about, and now again she liked him warmly, to tell her. But here, the houses falling away on both sides, they came out on the quay, and the whole bay spread before them, and Mrs. Ramsay could not help exclaiming, Oh, how beautiful! For the great plateful of blue water was before her. The hoary lighthouse, distant, austere in the midst, and on the right, as far as the eye could see, fading and falling in soft, low pleats the green sand dunes with wind-flowing grasses on them, which always seemed to be running away into some moon country, uninhabited of men. That was the view, she said, stopping, growing greyer-eyed, that her husband loved. She paused a moment. But now, she said, artists had come here. There indeed, only a few paces off, stood one of them in a Panama hat and yellow boots, seriously, softly, absorbedly, for all that he was watched by ten little boys with an air of profound contentment on his round red face, gazing, and then when he had gazed, dipping, imbuing the tip of his brush in some soft mound of green or pink. Since Mr. Ponsfort had been there three years before, all the pictures were like that, she said, green and grey, with lemon-coloured sailing boats and pink women on the beach. But her grandmother's friends, she said, glancing discreetly as they passed, Took the greatest pains. First, they mixed their own colours, and then they ground them, and then they put damp cloths to keep them moist. So, Mr. Tansley supposed she meant him to see that that man's picture was skimpy. Was that what one said? Under the influence of that extraordinary emotion, which had been growing all the walk, had begun in the garden when he had wanted to take her bag, had increased in the town when he had wanted to tell her everything about himself. He was coming to see himself, and everything he had ever known gone crooked a little. It was awfully strange. There he stood in the parlour of the pokey little house where she had taken him, waiting for her, while she went upstairs a moment to see a woman. He heard her quick step above, heard her voice cheerful, then low, looked at the mats, tea caddies, glass shades, waited quite impatiently, looked forward eagerly to the walk home. Determined to carry her bag, then heard her come out, shut her door, say they must keep the windows open and the doors shut, ask at the house for anything they wanted, she must be talking to a child. When suddenly, in she came, stood for a moment silent, as if she had been pretending up there and, for a moment, let herself be now, stood quite motionless for a moment against a picture of Queen Victoria wearing the blue ribbon of the garter. When all at once he realized, that it was this. It was this. She was the most beautiful person he had ever seen. The stars in her eyes and veils in her hair with cyclamen and wild violets. What nonsense was he thinking? She was fifty at least. She had eight children. Stepping through fields of flowers and taking to her breast buds that had broken and lambs that had fallen, with the stars in her eyes and the wind in her hair he took her bag. Goodbye, Elsie, she said, and they walked up the street, she holding her parasol erect and walking as if she expected to meet someone round the corner, while for the first time in his life Charles Tansley felt an extraordinary pride. A man digging in a drain stopped digging and looked at her, let his arm fall down and looked at her. For the first time in his life Charles Tansley felt an extraordinary pride. Felt the wind and the cyclamen and the violets, for he was walking with a beautiful woman. He had hold of her bag. Two. No going to the lighthouse, James, he said, as he stood by the window, speaking awkwardly, but trying in deference to Mrs. Ramsay to soften his voice in some semblance of geniality at least. Odious little man, thought Mrs. Ramsay. Why go on saying that? Three. Perhaps you will wake up and find the sun shining and the birds singing, she said compassionately, smoothing the little boy's hair, for her husband, with his caustic saying that it would not be fine, had dashed his spirits, she could see. This going to the lighthouse was a passion of his, she saw, and then, as if her husband had not said enough, with his cossack saying that it would not be fine tomorrow. This odious little man went and rubbed it in all over again. Perhaps it will be fine tomorrow, she said, smoothing his hair. All she could do now was to admire the refrigerator and turn the pages of the store's list in the hope that she might come upon something like a rake or a mowing machine, which with its prongs and its handles would need the greatest skill and care in cutting out. All these young men parodied her husband, she reflected. He said it would rain. They said it would be a positive tornado. But here, as she turned to the page, suddenly her search for the picture of a rake or a mowing machine was interrupted. The gruff murmur, irregularly broken by the taking out of pipes and the putting in of pipes, which had kept on reassuring her, though she could not hear what was said, as she sat in the window which opened on the terrace, that the men were happily talking, this sound, which had lasted now half an hour and had taken its place soothingly in the scale of sounds pressing on top of her, such as the tap of balls upon bats, a sharp sudden bark now and then, how's that, how's that, of the children playing cricket, had ceased, so that the monotonous fall of the waves on the beach, which for the most part beat a measured and soothing tattoo to her thoughts and seemed consolingly to repeat over and over again, as she sat with the children, the words of some old cradle-song murmured by nature. I am guarding you. I am your support. But at other times, suddenly and unexpectedly, especially when her mind raised itself slightly from the task, actually in hand, had no such kindly meaning, but like a ghostly roll of drums, remorselessly beat the measure of life, made one think of the destruction of the island and its engulfment in the sea, and warned her, whose day had slipped past in one quick doing after another, that it was all ephemeral as a rainbow. This sound, which had been obscured and concealed under the other sounds, suddenly thundered hollow in her ears, and made her look up with an impulse of terror. They had ceased to talk. That was the explanation. Falling in one second from the tension which had gripped her to the other extreme, which, as if to recoup her for her unnecessary expense of emotion, was cool, amused, and even faintly malicious, she concluded that poor Charles Tansley had been shed. That was of little account to her. If her husband required sacrifices, and indeed he did, she cheerfully offered up to him Charles Tansley, who had snubbed her little boy. One moment more, with her head raised, she listened, as if she waited for some habitual sound, some regular mechanical sound. And then, hearing something rhythmical, half said, half chanted, beginning in the garden, as her husband beat up and down the terrace, something between a croak and a song, she was soothed once more, assured again that all was well, and looking down at the book on her knee, found the picture of a pocket knife six blades, which could only be cut out if James was very careful. Suddenly, a loud cry, as of a sleepwalker half-roused, something about stormed at with shot and shell, sung out with the utmost intensity in her ear, made her turn apprehensively to see if anyone heard him. Only Lily Briscoe she was glad to find, and that did not matter but the sight of the girl standing on the edge of the lawn painting reminded her. She was supposed to be keeping her head as much in the same position as possible for Lily's picture. Lily's picture, Mrs. Ramsay smiled. With her little eyes and her puckered-up face, she would never marry. One could not take her painting very seriously. She was an independent little creature, and Mrs. Ramsay liked her for it. So remembering her promise... She bent her head. Good night.